Today's episode is made possible by Northwestern University Press and their new release, Art is Everything, by Whiting Award winner Ixtamaya Murray. In her funny and propulsive new novel, Murray offers us a portrait of a Chicana artist as a woman on the margins. Written as a series of Instagram essays, Snapchat freakouts, and rejected Yelp reviews that merge confession with art criticism, Art is Everything shows us the painful but joyous development of an artist whose world implodes just as she has a breakthrough. Listeners receive a 20% discount on Art is Everything or any other title with promo code POD20. This offer is available at nupress.northwestern.edu. Today's episode is also brought to you by Parek O'Donnell's The House on Vesper Sands, a January indie next pick that Helen McDonald calls funny, eerie, tender, haunting, and unsettling, smokily atmospheric and fantastically enjoyable. Set in late Victorian London, the novel tells the story of a rash of missing girls, all of whom seem to have disappeared under similar circumstances. On the case is Inspector Cutter, a detective as sharp and committed to his work as he is Riley Hilarious, and his sidekick, Gideon Bliss, a Cambridge dropout in love with one of the girls who's gone missing. As the duo peels back the mystery layer by layer, they offer a glimpse into the strange undertow of late 19th century London and the secrets we all hold inside us. The House on Vesper Sands is out on January 12th from Tin House and available now for pre-order. Well, somehow, if you are listening to this, and I'm saying it, we've made it to 2021. So, Happy New Year, everybody. Even if the turn of the calendar year is an arbitrary division of time, the ritualistic and superstitious part of me wants to believe we are turning a page. But on the other hand, I think of Samuel Beckett when asked in 1983 by the Times for his New Year's resolutions and hopes, where he responded with a brief telegram that went, resolutions, colon, zero, stop, period. Hopes, colon, zero, stop, Beckett. And yet, there is something real, not based in the stories we tell ourselves, that is happening this time of year. The return of the light, the retreat of the night, and soon the rising of the sap in the trees. My pinked on viburnum is starting to bloom. The daphna outside are budding. The hellebore look like they're preparing to show their flowers for Elisa Herod's weekly flower report on Twitter. So even with the pandemic, with the wildfires, with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, with the contested election, and so many other things. The earth is still turning and returning, getting ready to participate once again in renewal. This tension between reality and the real 
and myth-making and the ways myth-making is part of the real is a big part of Vanessa Veselka's latest book, a book that looks at how the absence of narratives or stories can be harmful and how story and myth-making can be an act of survival, but also looks at the harms caused by myth-making, whether that of a nation and the murder and theft it can gloss over with story, or that of a mother trying to imbue her child with a sense of purpose or destiny or safety. It seems like the perfect writer to begin the year with, one who writes a big American novel that jumps right into the ring with the story America tells itself, while also creating new stories for those who are often never in them. Most guests, when they contribute to the bonus audio archive, read something of their own writing, either something forthcoming or little known or in a different genre than the main conversation, or they read something by someone else that inspires them. But on rarer occasions, people do something entirely out of the box, like when Chaya Bhuvaneshwar sang, uh, or when several cross-genre hybrid writers, I'm thinking of Alicia Joe Rabins and Dow Strom, when they perform songs with violin and guitar, respectively. Today's guest, Vanessa Veselka, who prior to being a writer was for several decades a working musician both here and in Europe, performs a song for us today as her addition to the bonus archive. That is another thing, like the returning of the light that has been real and yet feels like a fairy tale, that listeners, in a way that I couldn't have ever dreamed, have lifted up the show and ensured it is going forward into 2021, ready to bloom. And writers, too, have been offering incredible things to entice listeners to become listener supporters. So you can find out how to subscribe to the bonus audio, check out all the wide variety of possible gifts available for becoming a listener supporter, from Broadsides by Forrest Gander, to Borges-inspired prints by Ricky Ducournay, to limited edition handcrafted collectibles by Nikki Finney, to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving advanced copies of 12 books over the course of a year, and a lot more, by heading over to patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program with Vanessa Veselka. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in 
is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer Vanessa Veselka. Veselka's 2011 debut novel, Zazen, for which she first appeared on Between the Covers, was also one of the first publications for Richard Nash's new publication venture at the time, Red Lemonade. Zazen was a book that heralded a new voice, one that prompted Tom Bissell to say, Vanessa Veselka is something like a literary comet, bright-burning, far-reaching, rarely seen, and a little dangerous. Zazen won the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize, beating out runner-up, leaving the Atocha Station by Ben Lerner. The judges in their citation said, when practicing Zazen, the disposition of our mind should be to see without being marred by what we see. This definition stands in stark contrast to the experience of reading Vanessa Veselka's keen dystopian novel Zazen. We can't help but be injured and destabilized. We can't help but find the contents at once disturbing and funny, explosive and muted, encyclopedic, intimate, and painfully honest. On top of all of this, Veselka has thrown herself into every single sentence of this lyrical, incisive, nervy book, turning even the most nightmarish scenes and satirical dialogue into effortless beauty. An ambitious encapsulation of our modern times, Zazen tackles counterculture hipsters, geology, Buddhism, consumerism, terrorism, veganism, family drama, and above all, love. In doing so, Zazen brings to the foreground the most fragile aspects of living the 21st century life and how, in the end, we as a society can become the very thing we fear. Unsurprisingly, Zazen is being reissued by Vintage a decade later in the fall of 2021. Vanessa Veselka is a graduate of Reed College, which she attended as a non-traditional student, 15 years older than most of her classmates, waitressing at a vegan cafe, driving nightcab, and raising her daughter as she worked on the manuscript that became her first book. You won't see her schooling in her bio, however, but rather her non-traditional schooling as a teenage runaway, hitchhiker, sex worker, independent record label owner, and union organizer. She was also from the 1980s into the 2000s, a working musician. She opened for the Ramones and Faith No More in Europe with her band The Remnant, moved to Seattle and formed Bell, which played with everyone from the White Stripes to Sleater Kinney, and later with Steve Moriarty of the Gits, formed the band The Pinkos. It's Vanessa's life out in the world, on the road, one that courted risk and chance and discovery that informs both her fiction and nonfiction. Her 2012 piece for GQ, The Truck Stop Killer, investigates whether her own brush with death might have been a near escape from the serial killer Robert Ben Rhodes. This and much of her nonfiction explore the gender dynamics of a woman on the road and the effect on women of the absence of quest narratives centered around female protagonists. The Truck Stop Killer went on to be included in Best American Essays 2013, and her other short prose has appeared in The Atlantic, Tin House, Smithsonian, Maximum Rock and Roll, and Bitch Magazine, among other places. Vanessa Veselka returns to Between the Covers to discuss her much-anticipated new novel, The Great Offshore Grounds from Kanav, a book that was long-listed for the National Book Award in Fiction. 
Publishers Weekly in its starred review says, Veselka blends fascinating details of seamanship, cab driving, and boot camp with intimate, spot-on descriptions of contemporary American poverty. This gritty and unsentimental work is compassionate, funny, and deeply human. Lydia Yuknovich adds, I immediately fell in love with the phenomenal sisters at the heart of Vanessa Veselka's supernova of a new novel, The Great Offshore Grounds. This novel is thrilling in its content, daring in heart, and makes a helix between a novel of ideas and the best damn story of women who forge their identities on their own terms that I've read in years. Roxane Gay adds, The Great Offshore Grounds is a magnificent beast of a novel, utterly engrossing, original, one of the rare novels that understands the realities of American poverty. Epic. Finally, Karen Russell says, The Great Offshore Grounds reminded me of what a great novel can do. Veselka's seafaring epic has the forward momentum of a grand adventure and the spiraling depth of a new myth. Darkly hilarious, astral, cerebral, suspenseful, warm-blooded, divine. Welcome back to Between the Covers, Vanessa Veselka. That's quite, uh, it sounds so much fancier when you say it. (laughs) Um, But thank you. This is actually, I've been waiting to do this. Uh, You know, you have a reputation as everybody's favorite interviewer. I've been waiting to do this too, because it's super gratifying, because you were one of the first 10 or 15 interviews that I ever did. And Mm -hmm. now, flash forward, here we are. You, you, a National Book Award finalist for fiction. Um, And as we'll talk about later, um, our lives sort of intersecting along the way. Um, So, which I I do want to weave into our conversation at some point. But before we talk about the Great Offshore Ground specifically, I was hoping we could talk about gender and quest narratives more generally. Sure. Anywhere you want to go. So you tackle this head on in your in your essay, Green Screen, The Lack of Female Road Narratives and Why It Matters, how narratives for women on the road either end in their rape, their death, or both. Um, in that essay, you say, whereas a man on the road might be seen as potentially dangerous, potentially adventurous, or potentially hapless, in all cases, the discourse is one of potential. When a man steps onto the road, his journey begins. When a woman steps onto that same road, hers ends. So I was hoping we could start with you talking more about the scarcity of female road narratives and then more specifically why it matters that they, that they exist. As I think this question informs, well, both of your books, but this book even more than Zazen. Yes, absolutely. So when I wrote that for context, as you mentioned, I, w- I had done this piece about uh, a long form piece that appeared in GQ through um, an old, old story in my life uh, about a time where I was held hostage in, in this situation when I was a teenager uh, with somebody that um, I thought might be this particular serial killer. And in writing all of this, you know, the beginning of any project that you write, or at least the way I view it, is I'm looking for the language that only that project speaks to a degree. I'm looking for like, what is the language of this particular story? And so, you know, I think my work feels a little more cohesive as it continues to sort of um, uh, develop over the years. Uh, 
but there's there was, it was very common for me um, for a long time for people to pick up one thing and say, I can't imagine it's the same writer who wrote this as wrote that, you know, and uh, particularly between my fiction and nonfiction. And some of that was because I really do approach each thing as what is the language that's required for this. And so my first interaction is to find the language. So in searching in writing the original GQ piece, which was a reported investigative piece that had a lot to do with memory as well, um, I had to find my own way in. How do I tell this story that's very hard to tell to explain efficiently the difficulty of um, the kinds of the worlds, the rules of the world that this is happening in so that I can explain what I'm about to say. So as I was writing, I was actually going into a lot of um, investigation of story myself that would be more of what I would think of in fiction uh, because I was having to try to understand how do I tell this thing? One of the things that became difficult in the writing of that is I think I turned it in at 14,000 words and I think it ended up being 9,700. And what was cut out of it essentially became green screen. And it was because I was trying to do, you know, as we were taking things out, I was getting frustrated because I was of two minds. I was the person trying to tell you a ghost story about death and about women on the road and about all the bad things that happened to them and all the dangers. And I was at the other hand, the person who had hitchhiked 20,000 miles, who believed in freedom, who believed there was potential, who had a problem with continuing to reify that story of people on the road. At the same time, I had to explain how dangerous it was. So it was causing a, a problem, right? Like, and I really needed to separate them. So it became a joke as we were writing with my editors, like, yeah, that one's going into the, uh, we, we called it the, what do we call it? We called it the, the feminist critique of the article I'm writing. Mm. So it was this project where I was doing a current feminist critique of the article I was writing in my own mind. Uh, and so I published them within two weeks of each other. Wow. And um, so they are always in my mind related in this very particular way in which that one is kind of almost arguing against the other sometimes. Yeah. But I needed a place for that whole other discourse about that wasn't academic to me about why and what does it mean to be on the road that's not just this story. Uh, so the, the story of like, you know, women being cut off from society, and this is where I think the two stories come together. There's this quality of when you see, and I think I say it in green screen, when you see a woman on the road, it's so much of where the danger is, is what happens when you see her? What are you seeing? Are you seeing someone, as you say in that quote, that you imagine potential in? for one way, uh, or are you seeing someone, you know, primarily what, what most people see is somebody who has the perception, the instinct is somebody who has been shunned, somebody who is cut off, somebody who is invisible to the world, somebody who is dangerous, right? There is not this safe idea that there could be any other reason a woman would, you know, take that step and be on the road. Mm -hmm. And so this quality of shunning is a very uh, big one. There's something like deeply, a woman who is that cut off from the pack, from the tribe, from whatever, is there's something dangerous about it and there's something that draws predators about it. That is true. And what green screen, green screen is saying is until we can even start to imagine that there's a, a quest that these you know, women could be on, that there's some possibility then, then there are so few options that 
all of the ways that you become visible because it's about invisibility and both pieces have that in common. If I decide, what happens if I decide you've been shunned for something? I decide there's something wrong with you. I decide like, I don't wanna get into that mess. That's not my mess to get into. And then I decide because the price of what that may mean for you is high, I have to tell myself, you know, I didn't really see it. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I think about that, I think about the way it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, or as it seems to, like the way in which the absence of narratives leads people not to see people who are outside of the narratives. So when you are when you wrote The Truck Stop Killer, you went back to places that were the site of uh, brutal murders outside of diners where uh, a woman was left yeah. in a dumpster. And you were talking to people who were working there at the time that these things happened, and they don't remember it. And then also the FBI talking about how, just how many people along that stretch of highway were, were killed. And yet no one has the impression of that time period being about that, which made me then wonder, are these people not remembering or were they not noting the people in the first place? And if they're not noting the people in the first place, is that why it would so easily draw a predator? Because that would be self-fulfilling that it would be more dangerous because so the absence of narrative not noticing somebody because of that, and then you becoming more vulnerable, fulfilling the prophecy that you shouldn't be on the road in the first place. Because, I mean, I was thinking about this with like Natalie Diaz when we were talking about the the continual epidemic of the disappearance of indigenous women. And that never even makes the news. It's not even like an, it doesn't, there's an epidemic in Oregon, in Washington, in Canada. Um, But it's, it's, of course, a predator would go after somebody where no one's going to blink an eye, I would imagine, if they disappear. No, it's exactly those. That is exactly the connection between those things. I got because of the article, you know, I've been privileged over the last one of the weird and uncomfortable privileges, I will say, over the last years is that I get contacted sometimes by, you know, homicide or police department, you know, sheriff's departments when remains come up in various ways or other things. And I've also gotten to work with several um, indigenous women's networks up in Canada um, and, and, you know, done some sort of support and other work with certain people. And um, it is, you know, so I really, that is, think about the levels of invisibility you're talking about there. How many times, I mean, I w- I've written about it a little bit from a completely different angle, but like this, you know, raised to be like, oh, the Indians are all dead. We killed them all, they're done, right? right? That's an incredible erasure, <laughs> right? It, and then like, it's erasure upon erasure upon erasure. Of course, I don't see them. I mean, it's, 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 I can think of no greater layering of every level of invisibility than a Native American woman, an indigenous woman on the road in those settings. Right. And of course, predators are on it like that. And so, yeah, so that narrative, you know, we don't have the placeholders that say, oh, I remember you, you're this type, I saw you on the road. It's just not a placeholder. It's, 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 it's not attached to story to us. And, you know, there's a, and I think this, we'll get into this with the great offshore grounds. I have real mixed feelings about things being attached to a story or not. Yes, like, I do want to get real, into that. <laughs> there's a real double-edged side of that, but when something is not attached to any kind of story, you know, it's just an, it's just an object in the wind. 
You know, it's, you're not, it's not placed into anything that hold, that memory is trained to hold. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, I'm going to read another line and then ask you another question about this. So you, you say, Siddhartha wants liberation. Dante wants Beatrice. Frodo wants to get to Mount Doom. We all want something. Quest is elemental to the human experience. And even reading that, however, I get the feeling that your answer with regards to female quest narratives is not simply to replace a male hero with a female heroine. So my two questions for you are, one, how are quest narratives in your mind the same or different than heroes' journeys? And mm -hmm. two, how does the structure of story change, at least for you, when you shape a quest narrative around a woman rather than a man? Those are both very deep questions. Um, first, I want to, one small digression, right? That when this piece came out, there was, it came out in the American Reader and it was called Green Screen. And uh, as you read it, but it got picked up also by a salon who retitled it, Why Are There No Women Kerouacs? And it went everywhere that way. And I got a whole rash of feedback on like, you know, people angry at me for not uh, recognizing that there were women writers writing about the road out there. And, and that was just because of the title that they put onto it. My question was never, why are there no women Kerouacs? Why aren't there women iconic narratives, right? Not writers, not experiences. There's experience out there. And what I mean, I am getting to your question. What I mean by that is that if I'm the average person on a road and I am looking at that man on the road, you know, even if I haven't read this book or that book, like I know what that, I know Frodo, you know what I mean? Like I, I can recognize that kind of character. I have like places for that in story and I don't have that for women. So the fact that like one or two people wrote a really stellar book about some times they took, you know, traveling together through Russia in the late 90s. I mean, like it's irrelevant to the, per you know, we're talking about deeply grooved human, icon you know, iconic narratives, right? So can you build that outside of the hero's journey model? Um, there's a lot of, that's a rut that's pretty deeply dug at this point in terms of like what becomes a, a mass mythic understanding of something, but I don't think it's inevitable. And I think that we have to change how we look at quest. Because the fundamental problem, like there's a beauty to the hero's journey, right? Which is it can at its best make mundane, horrific, annoying, frustrating or devastating things seem part of a piece that is moving somewhere that has a purpose and a point that um, that a, that should you make the right choices, a win is guaranteed, right? Like that's a, that's a, that's a fundamental thing. And it can really pull people out of other stories. Like you use one story to pull people out of other stories. The downside, and I think this is where you get in all sorts of question of privilege and like how it functions and why it can't function the same way. The downside is, you know, <laughs> I've been reading a lot of Vonnegut again recently. And, you know, the sort of, um, when that point when you decide that every single person around you is like a machine who showed up to like interact with you in this moment for this per <laughs> personal reason, like there's a quality of hero's journey that makes everybody a symbolic object. You know, you are my obstacle, you are my this, you are my that. And so there's a, 
you know, so it's, it's really, I think what is true is that the hero's journey is really just so much the white man's journey. Like it really strongly comes out of that a lot of times. And when we look at other kinds of, so how do you do when you write around a woman? Um, I don't find that I can write it in the same way because I don't even find I can think of it in the, in the same way. Um, the hero's journey lacks one of the most fundamental truths and um, that I can think of, which is um, doubling back and doubling down. You know, one of the things in this book that I looked at a lot was how do you, you know, how do you show character arc when fundamentally they're doubling down? Like there's no, like in the way we think about the hero's journey, what they learned, could they become in the end, like all of these machinations, what do you do when it's like doubling back? Um, like, yeah. Anyway. Well, another, another thing that I think of from an interview that I was reading of yours too, was how, when you read Paul Bowles, the sheltering sky, how it blew your mind that when all, when the main male characters were dead, the story continued with the woman who goes out into the desert. It's my favorite part of the book and it's so unexpected and there's something thrilling. It's not a doubling back, but it's, it's um, forging a new path that is like completely outside of the form. Like <laughs> everything that you expect that's going to happen all of a sudden it's something else. And it feels like the rhythm, the pace, the pacing, everything about it seems to shift all of a sudden in that book. It's very wild. Um, I mean, I could see, I guess, I could see why that would have been um, for someone starved for uh, female quest narratives, uh, a potentially revelatory moment. It, it was. And I think the pacing is of necessity different. And then it comes back to the question we talked, you raised with, uh, started with, which was, there are many more possibilities than death, you know, and rape on the road. And yet those are also still possibilities and they are very real possibilities. And um, and because of that, the things that have to be done, the way things have to be managed is built in the story, the same way poverty is built into a story. Like when you, you know, somebody said to me recently, like, well, you know, ironically, you're, you know, your character is the only thing they think about are money. And I'm like, yeah, everybody's got no money and has to get from point A to B. All they think about is money. <laughs> like, how, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it, there's a, there is a way that things just take on a completely different rhythm from the complexity of how do you go from this is my idea to this is my action is everything about the power you have in the, in the social world to make that happen. And so, you know, depending on whether that's, you know, a woman traveling on a road, whether that's, you know, somebody trying to um, do anything that takes a financial reach, it's going to change the pacing of how we tell stories because of that. Yeah. Well, I, I, in one interview, someone brought up, well, in one interview, you bring up that someone said to you, I don't know how to put this, but you write like a dude. And the interviewer then asked you if you if you thought that was offensive when they said this. And I found your answer really interesting and illuminating, actually. You said that you grew up with a lot of strong women role models, and you write with a certain authority because of them. And that that feeling of authoritativeness from a writer is almost always associated with men in the culture. And so perhaps the writing like a dude is coming from the sense of this feeling that you're writing from a 
place of authority. Am I, am I paraphrasing you right? Yeah, I think that's really close. I think there's, uh, you know, the conversation that that came out of had two, two pieces that I'd want to bring into it, which was the person who had said you write like a dude also said to me, I've never met, he had been teaching a lot in MFAs at that point. And he said, I have never yet met, um, he said, every, every woman writer I've ever met, no matter how good, no matter how confident, and he brought this up because I was asking, expressing the same issue, um, has this thing, this is how he got me to write the uh, truck stop killer piece. He said, uh, was, you know, everybody doubts it's their right to tell the story. It's all, you know, I mean, like every woman, it's just like you ask them and they're like, I'm not sure if it's my story to tell. I feel like I'm not, you know, like I'm not sure I'm the right one. I'm not sure I'm the this. And he's like, I have never once met a single guy in any MFA I've ever been who's ever doubted for one second. It was his right to tell any story he wanted to tell. And he said, and I don't understand that he was coming from a real place of like, I just don't know how to break that spell. Like, I don't know what that is. So I think on the one hand, I did come from that, you know, very sort of my mother wielded power like a man, you know, in a lot of ways. I do too in social spaces a lot of times. That's what I've seen. It's, you know, and I, I always you can talk about that, but there's, um, well, for what it's worth, I, I don't feel like you write like a man, but both books, both of your books have these super resilient women in them and unconventionally so. Um, However, I want to jump in on one thing. I don't feel like I write like a man. I think the authority is that that sense of authority is just like a, it is something that's somehow recognizable, meaning like it's a kind of directness, but I never got called... I never got put into women's fiction with Zazen, even though all the characters are women except for one. Which is also true with your, your new yes. book. But with my new book, it's listed as women, as sisters fiction, women's fiction, dom oh, it is. domestic fiction, it divorce is. fiction. And I have been completely wow. separated into that world. I'm shocked, actually. Yeah. I'm not happy oh. about it. <laughs> I mean, I know it sounds like petty, but it's like, no, it bothers me. Yeah. It bothers yeah. me. That's how it's like, you look in the libraries, it's domestic fiction. It, I mean, it is just simply the fact of having anything that, so there's been a feminizing and I was afraid of it in the writing and I chose to take the path I took and I was right that there was a fear for it, but that's what I'm up for. That's so wild. I mean, I would never have dreamed that would have happened to, to this book. I mean, because you do have almost all women as main protagonists in the book. Super resilient. Motherhood is a part of the book, but for no character in the book is motherhood central or all-encompassing or or even self-defining, really. And and the main man in the book, Essex, who's a street kid adopted by Kirsten when he's 11 and who becomes the brother of the two main characters, the sisters, Cheyenne and Livy, he's raised entirely by women. And there's this really funny moment where we learn that he's that one of his formative texts is reading Little Women, um, which is so great. Like, so I mean, he's his whole, whole way to like make meaning from the world is coming from, 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 uh, from that fact. Um, but I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question as sort of a lead-in to talking more specifically about the book. And it's a question about America. And then I want to take that question of America and bring it into 
what is one of the more unusual aspects of the central family. Um, so first I feel like there's this particularly storied tradition in America of road narratives, the romanticization of open spaces, of trains, of cars on the road, of wilderness and wildness, of the possibility of reinvention and living a life away from or escaping the pressures of history. But what is interesting to me about your book, The Great Offshore Grounds, is that it seems to both join this tradition and critique it, or perhaps to join it in order to critique it, I'm not sure. But the novel feels like a very American novel and a novel that is evoking the story that America tells itself to punch holes in it. And I didn't know, I just wanted to hear what you thought of that take. Does that seem right to you? And if not, tell us, tell us about, tell us about that aspect because um, it feels in, in a way like you're embracing an American road narrative, but also um, making us very aware of the shadow that it casts. Yeah. I mean, it is right that, I am intentionally doing both those things. However, what is also true is that it's an honest project. The way I, you know, I, I write about America in my mind, that's how it just comes to be. It, but what I'm drawn to is my own, the places where my own desire and uh, critique align and there is no answer right, where I'm both very drawn to the, it, you know, and I'll talk about more widely in an adventure tradition too in a second, but like where I'm very drawn to something, to that, that big expansive story of what the possibility of America could be, which is, you know, up to the point of like elements of exceptionalism. And at the same time, very in contact with all of the death and danger and, um, you know, lying and obfuscate, like all of the darkness and shadow that is equally a part of it. And I write into the places where I can't find full resolution, where like, maybe I know I should be here, but I kind of am also here, but then I'm here in this way, but then there's also something great. And so when I started out writing this, what I wanted to do in part was I really had to try to say to myself, because I was in a very dark place you know, I mean, in some ways, I feel like I could say I've always been in a really dark place about America because I was raised, you know, I'm, I'm basically a red diaper baby, you know, and, and was raised with COINTELPRO and all. I mean, and like, I'm not somebody who came to that in college. I, you know, I came with an analysis at a very early age, you know, <laughs> when I was five, I don't recommend this for parenting, but when I was five, you know, we would play Vietnamese kids Um be, uh, you know, hiding from, I wanted to play, anyway, hiding from the terrible U.S. soldiers who were trying to burn and kill us. You know what I mean? Like that was, that was like my concept of play at five, because that yeah. sense of empathy and that sense of awareness that my family had brought me to like know what was happening in the war in a very non-age appropriate for somebody who can't do anything about it way, was haunting my dreams and my imagination and my lack of place and not sure where I should be in that. You could see yeah. that. So that's just normal human stuff. So I didn't come to this like American story 
as something that was fed to me like apple pie that I slowly in college began to untangle and then had analysis. You know what I mean? Like I, I came from a very other side of it. So then the project sometimes for me is, is there anything worth saving? What is there that's worth saving? Right. Which is the question of, of Della and, mm-hmm. and Zazen. Should I leave the country? Should I stay despite things falling apart? Should I even help speed up the falling apart? Right. Um, but I, the reason why I wanted to start with this question of America and its upsides and downsides, which are not often experienced by the same people, yes. and also of national and cultural myth-making, because I wanted to bring that into the central family in, in the novel, because it feels like the upsides and downsides of a culture trying to escape history are baked into the story of this family. Um, so I was hoping you could talk about this extremely unusual and mysterious origin story for the two sisters, Cheyenne and Libby in the book as sort of our beginning into sort of unpacking the, the story that you've created in the novel. Okay. So Cheyenne and Libby are half sisters um, who are, who share a birthday. Um, and the woman who has raised them, her name is Kirsten, was a 19 year old pagan kind of goth goth girl in, in the early 90s when she got pregnant. And um, she was in a relationship with a grad student and uh, there was, it was an open relationship and another woman became friends and like their periods synced up and they ended up getting pregnant at the same time. And one woman really didn't want to- By, the, by the same by man. By the same man, sorry. And yes. uh, one woman didn't really want to be a mother and, and Kirsten, for kind of a set of half-baked reasons, it, being 19 and, and you know, newly vegetarian and suddenly having this sort of like squeamishness about you know life in any way, could just couldn't simply conceive of the idea of aborting, like in from where she came from, from all this stuff. So she agrees uh, after some throws of the I Ching with the other woman that she will take both girls there when they're born. They don't know their girls then, but they should, she will take both kids and the other woman will go on and that she will never tell them which one was which she, you know, that she will raise them both. And the other woman gets a total pass. She's gone. She's out of the picture. Yeah. And so when the novel starts, uh, the women are 33 and um, they're starting at a very particular point in their life. And, and I, I won't go into the details of that, but that's the founding myth. What happens is, you know, when Kirsten decides she's going to do this, uh, the, the grad student kid, he's not a kid, he's older than her. Um, the grad student bails and just sort of, you know, gets out of the situation and occasionally comes and, you know, pays a hospital bill here and there, but has had substantially no um, he, he does at one point bring, uh, he, when they're younger, he brings the girls to, um, to his, his work in this software company is kind of like show, show and tell from his like wild polyamorous days to sort of, I think they say, uh, Vedim is an unconventional thinker, but there's like no connection yet. They haven't seen him since they were 14 at the beginning of the novel. And it opens basically on his wedding to a younger woman. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned right at the beginning how you explore um, your ambivalence around story making and myth making. And I feel like this is this is a prime area. And 
to me, like America tries to imagine it doesn't have a mother itself, that it doesn't matter who its mother is. And, and I think of Whitman inventing new forms by willfully pretending that no poetry existed before him. And the way we glorify freedom and self-invention over and against countries that seem to have more rigid caste systems, um, it feels like that's all somehow intertwined with this family too, because we have Kirsten who invents a narrative purpose for her two daughters, also sort of out of nothing. And it's a mythology about the North Star that sort of imbues their lives with a sense of destiny. Um, and I was hoping you could talk about that, both sides of that, um, the the purpose of that, and then maybe the the ways in which it doesn't quite do what she's hoping it's going to do. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that because at different periods, and we will talk about this, I'm sure, a little bit, you know, in the very long time of me writing this novel, um, I came to understand it in different ways, the what, I, what am I trying to do here? And, and in some ways, I felt like Kirsten was part of creating a founder, founding mother. She was a founding mother. Um, in the way that she set herself up and that there was, you know, the way that she, we find out it's a very small part of the book, but that when she cut ties with her family, you know, she had told the little, the girls when they were little that they were immigrants um, because, you know, and they actually thought they were real immigrants, but she was just, you know, Kirsten was just kind of like, you know, we left the dead old world behind. We're here in the new world. <laughs> like, you know, nobody, yeah. you know, so they actually introduced themselves as, as first generation in the like second grade when they weren't like, you know, they, and so there is this her as a founding mother and there is her as like, what's the, what's the unseen. And that's one of the things Cheyenne, one of the sisters, like, you know, what if there's another history to have? What if that other history is invisible now, but you can find it? What if you can't find it, but you can make it? What does it mean to make it? Are you constructing yourself? You know, so Kirsten is definitely somebody who believes you can construct. Like if you just tell the stories and you take someone, you raise them in it, they will believe it and have the things you did not have. They will be, they will take for granted that which you will have to fake. Um, and I think a lot of people in social justice movements know the difference, right? You know, you can see a lot like my daughter's 18 in five days and you can see a lot of this kind of like, oh, the, she takes it as like absolutely solid, you know, fact stuff that I think people in my generation are like, this is an ideal, this is a vision, this is where we're going, you know what I mean? So there's, and a back, so she wants to create um, a sense of autonomy and purpose and specialness for the daughters um, and a freedom and a pioneering spirit for that is a, obviously a very complex word, right? But that's yes. kind of how she's creating something. She wants to make a new world. And at the same time, the number one thing that she's seen as the difference is that People come from the upper classes automatically have a story built in that their life matters, that their changes can be glorious, that destiny holds something for them. 
that people are on their way to teach or serve them. And that there is always this, you know, I mean, that there's something of greatness that is always unfolding if they but follow it. And she wants to give that to her daughters because she sees that poor kids don't have that, you know, in her, like, I'm not, but she's like that, that sense of, yeah, we all have to watch out where the like <laughs> King's parade is going, you know, if it rolls over you, you know, but like the King's parade's not watching out for, you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. there's a, a difference. And so she thinks if she instills this belief system that they will think that they are worthy of greatness and that they will not expect less from themselves. But not, well, yeah, not even like emotionally, like wishy-washy worthy of greatness, more like they will expect that that they that they can have a place in meaning in the same way. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting and complicated because it feels like Cheyenne is the daughter. One of the daughters is is critique is upset with her mom's obsession with this hero's journey or personal journey, which she does associate with uh, rich people. But that but the need for it, as you say, is coming from poverty. And so it becomes like, there's this thing that you say in writing about your own hitchhiking when you were 15, that your survival depended upon some kind of narrative to spell out a potential for you beyond death, which then raises the question, is it better to have a simplistic and ultimately problematic narrative than no narrative? And maybe Kirsten's, you know, stepping into the idea that this story however you analyze it retrospectively is going to save my daughters. But I wanted, but I wanted to, um, I just feel like this is one example of the way poverty is shaping the narrative of the book. And I, I, and, and we're talking about a poverty that is extreme enough that the characters are making their own tampons because they can't afford to buy them in a store. And there are characters who have never been on a plane or in a hotel. And there are characters who join the army for financial security. Um, but I wonder if an, another way the, the narrative is shaped by poverty is, is the way the characters are all keeping secrets from each other. And I don't know if I'm reading into this or whether this is there. Um, so I just want to, I'll put it out there. You tell me what you think. But, but there's a lot of things that happen between these characters who care for each other whether it's a sexual assault or a, a health diagnosis um, that they don't share with each other. And to me, it feels like they're so under-resourced and so overextended, not just financially, but ultimately emotionally living on the edges of their own abilities to cope with their own things, let alone the others that it almost feels like the withholding is an act of care. It is. That you're hundred percent right. It is exactly what that's intended to be, which is there's not enough resources. There's no resilience. How can I? I know you, and I know how hard it is going to be for you to hear what I'm about to tell you. And once I tell you, you won't be able to do anything about it. You won't be able to change anything. Then I'm carrying that too. You're carrying that or worse, you give me the one only resource you have 
to try to make something better and it's still not enough. And now you don't have it and I don't have, like, so they are very close. And the closeness is marked by the things they don't share with each other because they are trying not to overburden each other to the point of complete annihilation in, in so many ways. And it causes all sorts of problems, but it's not because they're distant and it, it would be very different. It's because they are poor and the resources and the levels at which things are sort of, we're just the general state of living is hard. And there's not an easy, like, you know, if you've ever been in the situation, you know, really are without resources and something and somebody who means well says, why don't you just do this? And you, you start to explain, well, because A, B and C and D can't do this without doing that. Well, why don't you just do this? You know, and you can sit there and politely spend a lot of time with people as they very generously walk around what seem to be obvious options to ch make change. And at the end of that exchange, <laughs> everybody's miserable, right? And then what happens in that moment is interesting because a lot of times the person who's offering, well, you could do this, you could do this, you could do this, gets frustrated and said, well, clearly you don't want to change because it's too painful to say like the barriers here, I cannot solve that easily. On the other hand, I guess there are, it is in the details. The hardness of the life that they're in is in the details. It's not into the like, here's one thing that fixes it. It is in the details. Um, and there's no more, I have decided these last years, <laughs> they're the most, Height, the height of privilege in any form is the privilege to be abstract. That is the highest mark of privilege to me, to be abstract, to say, yeah, I'm going to have this one litmus test politics, you know, political issue and, you know, scorch the earth if that's not met, to be at whatever level or, or the ability to say like, you know, to be able to be above the details. That is, that is related to privilege. And so these are characters who do care about each other. They're very flawed people. Um, they are not dour about their circumstances. You know, they're not dour characters. Uh, they have, some of them are incredibly talented at a certain kinds of grift. Um, you know, there's, there's um, also a, a love of that, I think, in the book that I share a love for like people who are kind of grifters and like the kind of sketch along some of that, you know? So uh, they're not like pure characters, you know? But I think, poverty's in the reality of their situation is in everything and I think the trickiness is the characters are very different in how they take it um Livy one of the sisters you know is very much more bought into this idea of she's bought into the American idea of bootstraps enough that her big goal is to get to where nobody owes her, you know, like she doesn't owe anybody a single thing and she's got her boat and she's got her place and that's it, you know, but she doesn't have it anywhere in her to imagine that she's actually going to get out of working class. She just wants to not be sinking. She just wants to not be owing. And, and um, whereas I think Cheyenne, you know, she went through a marriage with somebody who was at a different social station and what part of her anger about these heroes journey stories of her moms is that they didn't work. 
what she saw is she could not pass even with those things that the real difference was deeper than that. And that she was marked as somebody who was not from that class in a much more deep level than she could pass with. And that's where her, so she was more of a true believer in that. And then, you know, it backfired. I want to take a moment to talk about one of the things that we see and watch a character experience that not everybody in the book learns about or not at the same time. And that is, uh, there's a, there's a rape in the book that happens in real time and the way you portray it and its aftermath, I thought was really rare, I guess. I don't know that I can connect it to other, uh, portrayals. Um, and the way the character responds is so outside the normal cultural tropes around this, around sexual assault narratives. Um, and I know you've thought a lot about it generally. I know you have an older essay, The Collapsible Woman. Um, so it made me want to ask you, uh, as a writer, what considerations you were going through as you wrote this mm-hmm. uh, thread of the book, what you did and didn't want to do in terms of portrayal and how it affected the character or what you wanted to avoid versus what you wanted to write into that wasn't there and in, mm-hmm. in literature at large. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, as you know, the, the book went through um, some transition with publishers. And one of the big sort of uh, moments where I realized how far apart I was from an editor at one point was that their perception of what that scene was, was so radically different than my intention and they hated it with such passion <laughs> that they could barely talk to me <laughs> and, oh, wow. uh, and had written and felt like it was there just for shock value. Is that why they hated it? Yeah. They felt okay. like it was there for shock value. And I remember having this discussion with this person and saying, look, and this person was very smart and everything, but kind of a blue blood a little bit, you know I mean? Uh, and I said, uh, look, For many women uh, in upper middle class New York or other things like that, you know, sexual assault, child molestation, all these things, they're, they're not just, they're, they're in rich people as well as <laughs> poor people, but not in the same ways and same degrees because it has to do with accessibility, visibility, and, and like who's protecting whom and where all that power is. So, you know, settings, child molestation is a little different, but when you're talking about like straight up, you know, rape uh, and assault, you know, you'll hear stories of women who have, you know, in the upper echelons of culture who may have had a lot of experiences, uh, you know, with molestation, but the fewer with fewer with straight up rape where it's like, okay, there was something in college and this happened or this happened with my first employer. I never told anybody. And what I said to this person is that you have to understand that for a good 30% 30 of the poorest women in this country, it's just a bad Friday night. I can't tell you how many times I've met women who, who, you know, if they called it rape, they would say they'd been raped 30 or 40 times. It's a bad Friday night. You wanna talk about story and how story allows you to survive even when it's not a helpful story? You know, 
the most fundamental thing about this when you look at Trump and women and things like that is like, think of all the women who, if they had to look at what he was doing and call it rape or sexual assault, sexual abuse, would have to look at everybody else in their entire, you know, family, society, everybody who ever done it, name it as the same thing. And then what do you do? Right. So there is a different way that because of the invisibility, because you don't have the, think about everything that economic resilience goes into. I'm assaulted and it's my boss. What if I can't afford to get another job? I'm assaulted. I need time to like take time off to try to get, you know, everything else. Well, I don't have time to take off time off. You know, I, you know, or, or like, is it even considered assault in that? You know what I mean? Like there's so many cultures where like so many subcultures where it's like not even considered assault. You know, we were drinking, we were doing that, right? So there's this constant, constant like set of layers to this where, I mean, it's true for me in my own experience. And my older, I have an older sister that I found through Ancestry, which is a very fascinating way to find a whole, whole extra sister. Um, and she and I <laughs> talked about this um, through things as well, where it's just like, yeah, we feel a lot of times we're like, you know, you have this, it was like, yeah, you could call it that. Yeah, it kind of was, I'd call it that today. I didn't call it that then. In this case, the character is very um, self-sufficient, right? And her, and she hates the idea that anybody could decide who she was ever at any time. And so it's particularly difficult for her to figure out what to do in that moment. And I wanted to leave space for other ways of reacting because I think that it's become so prescribed. Um, well, I, the reason I'm surprised that the, editor was shocked is your characters are also putting themselves in uh professions that are overwhelmingly male professions too so like you're you're in a situation like of you know nine to one men to women in confined settings um also uh, that wouldn't make that shocking to me we saw things differently on on what a feminist novel was I think we both understood that this was in many ways a feminist novel. I take that to mean there are humans who are women in the story. Um, but, and I think she wanted a feminist, you know, she understood and wanted that. And yet we were generationally a little bit different and had very different ideas of what that feminism meant and what it looked like. So for instance, she wanted all the male characters out because she felt that heightened the feminism of the novel. And I felt like, my female characters are strong enough to stand on their own in a world where there are also men and still have it be about them. And like, so I was very much like that. And so we would have these different debates, right? That I think were in heart generational. And I think when it came to the rape, she was, she saw the character as living in a world that was largely male dominated, you know, and uh, that she was out in this world and felt like I was undercutting, that I was continuing an anti-feminist trope by saying that she was in, you know, that she would get raped in that world. And then she thought, found the way that I wrote about it to be, uh, so I write about it in a way where it happens very quickly. And it's just, it moves, it moves extremely fast. And she found that to, she thought that that was 
lazy, a lazy way or to do shock value writing. I think whatever it was, she had strong feelings about it. Whereas, and that's how we got into that conversation. Whereas my point was a lot of times this stuff is just like, you're getting cheese out of the walk-in. You're getting, you know I mean? Like you're in one situation or another. Well, in your own nonfiction, I know there were scenes when you're being picked up by a trucker and you wake up from sleeping and he's yeah. got his hand down your shirt yeah. or. It's just instant. Like, yeah. And, and so, yeah. And so I think, um, you know, it was a generational, uh, I think primarily and a perspective difference, but the, the one we were talking about with poverty was, a, is a big one because, you know, when I talk for real to my friends who come straight out of working class backgrounds, we're talking in numbers 20, 30, 10, you know, and, and they're a lot more able to talk about it, ironically, than the women and friends of mine that I've talked to who come from where it's treated as a more rarefied experience rather than a, a thing that happens. Right. And so, you know, that's, again, it goes to story. Do you want it to be treated like a rarefied experience? Yeah. Do you want it to, but, but does that give space for the women for whom it's not a rarefied experience to like interact and they need to survive? What if, what if they can't get counseling and they can't take time off and they can't make it the center of their lives and they're going to have to live with these people or work with these people? They need to build something inside themselves that allows them to thrive and be there and have a sense of humor and a perspective. Yeah. Well, I'd like to, I'd like people to hear a little bit of the book. If we could, if we could, um, we could have you read a little bit. Okay. So this is uh, from a chapter um, called Irish Lord, which is uh, about Livy. For the past several summers, Livy had worked long lining for halibut in the Gulf of Alaska. The family that employed her ran a small outfit out of Ketchikan. Their boat, a marginally buoyant piece of fiberglass. Their skipper, a third generation fisherman, utterly without instinct. As a student of what not to do, Livy studied the man as she would a rare and dying plant. When he got excited, she too felt the thrill and paid particularly close attention. The fish are there, he'd yell, I feel it. He was always wrong, pointing at a vague patch of glassy black sea and shouting, down there. It was the moment he lived for though it underscored their ever bleakening prospects. It was his moment, his to take, down there, yes. Down there with the starfish and the Irish lords, down with the albino space shrimp. The most unimaginable things came up on those lines and none of them were halibut. Over time, Libby learned where the fish were by where the captain didn't go. After months of blisters and vomiting over the side of the rail, Libby was often glad when the season ended and she returned to Seattle and went back to driving cab at night floating through the intersections at bar closing time, fishtailing on the barest shimmer of rain in a crown Victoria, making money, her own captain at last. Yet no eternity exists more vividly than a 5 a.m. in a Dairy Queen parking lot holding some jackass's empty wallet as collateral while he tries to borrow his fare from the dealer. This was how it went for three years, back and forth, migrational. But now Alaska had fallen through. After a winter of pull tab binges in Juneau, the family she'd always worked for had sold their boat, converted to Mormonism, and moved south in the embrace of the church. Without another Alaska connection, Livy was out of luck. Driving cab was changing too. Every jerk with the car was cab driver now, and all the real money was gone from the game. 
So she got a job refurbishing vintage yachts at a marina on Lake Union. The position flew under the radar of the state minimum wage requirements by claiming to be training. Here's a scraper, there's the paint, go forth. So getting up to minimum wage took three months, but she worked without supervision and that was worth a lot. Then in the early spring, Libby found her basement studio built without permits and well below code. It absorbed 80% of her income, but it was the first time in her life that she'd had any real privacy until Cheyenne showed up and ruined it. Now her boxes of books and records filled the corner. Her chatter was constant. She boiled all the macaroni and drank all the Folgers. With every economic microaggression, she created a soft and persistent financial pressure, reminding Livy of how tentative existence was. A broken arm could shatter Livy's livelihood. Bronchitis could soak up an entire paycheck. One minor bike accident, that's it, watch below. Because that's all it would take to end up on her mother's couch. Livy began walking to and from work just to be alone, an hour each way. She walked along the ship canal, under the Aurora Bridge, along the edge of the lake, and sometimes thinking of it as the edge of a vast and horizonless sea instead. We've been listening to Vanessa Veselka read from The Great Offshore Grounds. So you mentioned this in the beginning, unprompted, about people being surprised about you being the author of different things, particularly between your fiction and nonfiction, that you're, that it's the same author. Um, and I wanted to ask you a question in, in light of that. Before we talk more about the story, I wanted to talk about the language and the syntax, um, sort of in the spirit of reinvention. Because one of the things that's fascinating to me about having read Zazen and now The Great Offshore Grounds is that I recognize thematic resonances between the book. I recognize sort of kindred engagements with America. I recognize characters that I think could inhabit either of the books. But nevertheless, on the level of the line, if we think about the music of the sentences or the wave of the mind underneath the meaning of the words that Virginia Woolf talks about, I don't know that I would know that these two books were written by the same writer on that level. It's almost like you reinvented your musical signature from one book to the next. And I don't know if that rings true to you, but if it does, I was wanting, wanting to hear about it. Um, also, you're a musician. So I was, it, and I'm curious because the music, the music of the language is really different. It's just, it's, it's remarkable, actually. It does feel like a reinvention, and I didn't know um, what that was all about. So it, it's a combination of things. Yes, as I said earlier, I do look at everything, and I'm, I'm learning as I'm writing what is the right language to tell the story in. And that's happening at the same time as I'm going, oh, wait a minute, is it this story or is it that story? Or, you know what I mean? Like as you're digging in deeper and going like, oh, it's that story. Okay. You know, and reorienting. I'm also looking at what is the language that can contain that story that's going to give me the most range. This very simple answer, which is not sufficient between the language shifts in these two books is one's first person and that's the sound of Della's voice. And the other one is a third person narrator and it has um, a different... Um, sense of scope that needs to be laid from the beginning. However, that's only one aspect that sort of like expedites, um, or expedites not the right word, that, that sort of uh, accelerates the polarization of those voices. I think um, 
there always was this sense for me as I was, you know, I was not somebody who wrote and wrote and wrote and then started publishing. I was somebody who played music and played music and played music and then started publishing. And so there's not a gap um, where I have tons of material I was experimenting with and kind of came up to something. So my whole learning curve has been public. Um, and in the way that I tended to write nonfiction fell more into, you know, my own internal way of trying to, to show scope um, and, and hearing things in a very particular way. And yes, I write very sonically. And I knew I was going to need, I like your way of talking about a musical set. I knew I was going to need another way to convey the story I wanted to convey. I knew I wasn't going to do it with the tools that I had learned and the ways I had learned to tell stories in Zazen uh, or in some of my short stories up to that, which were all, those were all first person as well. And I knew I had to do this in third person. And so the very first problem I had was that I hated third person when I first encountered it. I hated writing in it because I felt like it was horribly normalizing, right? Like as soon as you go to third person, if you get too, you know, rhythmic or particular at the, at the line level, then all of a sudden it's not third person anymore. It's this narrator that's talking to you in a very stylized way and you want to know who they are. Like it, it really defined to have a third person be a third person. Um, you know, it normalizes language in a lot of ways. And you can take a lot of other experimental or, and that's, I think, where people who like to write in third person but want to be more experimental, they go to form. But there's still like inter at the level of voice in third person, it is just like, I, it was like being put in a cage all the time and then going like, and I tried all these different ways of like, how do I not give up the range I want to have for the sounds I want to make? Because I think in sound and rhythm. And so it was really hard to start to sort it out. And, and I went through, and I'm not totally sold 100% on where I ended up. I went through phases of, of there being, I think initially initial versions of some of this were a lot more um, the merging of the narrator and the characters was a lot more extreme and disorienting at different times. And I had to reel some of that, you know, so it was always funny saying that. And the truth is there is a narrator in this novel, like the narrator, you know, I started calling it the accusatory third. Like, you know, it's like, well, what do you, you know, it sort of occasionally just turns and accuses the reader of doing something terrible, you know, or like, you know, or saying, well, like, and this is how things are. Like there is a, that breach that happens. Um, the songs, the shanties that are in here um, are definitely part of the narrator's humor, the narrator's voice. Um, so there is a quality of narration. So not being able to access the rhythms and the, moves and the ways that I could, you know, get to insight quickly in one way or not, um, that I had accessible in the first person, I had to understand. So then I was stuck with this problem, which was like, how do I find and hear the natural sense of music that makes, that makes it work for me, that allows me to do this? So I had to dig into what that was. So I think that it really is a function of the third person exploration and the probably the elements that I went for um, to some degree 
um, we're coming out of, I wrote a piece called Fort of Young Saplings. And I wrote that in the middle of writing this. And they share um, a telling of the Battle of Sitka, um, and uh, which is a very meaningful thing that, you know, that Fort of Young Saplings explains why it's meaningful to me, but it's also in here. And I wrote them in two different ways. But I think that that I was starting to discover the rhythms that I could use in third person in certain ways in, in that interaction. So it does, it has a very different musical quote, but I don't think the next book will have the same either. Like I, yeah. I, I really don't, like I really do look at um, what's the language. Well, let me ask you about the size of the book. Cause I know when I would <laughs> see, when I would see you, you said you wanted to write a big fat 19th century style novel like a Dostoevsky book it's not that big now it's 400 pages and it but I think at one point it might have been six six or seven hundred pages mm -hmm. before you edited it and I remember it made me think of a, a a Facebook discussion that happened among smart people among writers or so I thought they were smart that were that was started with and was mainly people trashing long novels as just another example of man spreading of sort of like the ma maximalist impulse. Um, you know, they'd point at David Foster Wallace or at Canals guards, my struggle as sort of this exasperating gendered phenomenon. And my one like brief entry into the conversation was, wasn't to argue that there wasn't a gendered lineage among size. I mean, I even think if we're going back to like poetry, like Whitman and versus Dickinson, Mm -hmm. And the way and the way um, their lines are, and the way the legacies, like if we could look at Alice Notley and Jory, Jory Graham wanting to claim the long line um, away from Whitman and Ginsburg, I don't know if they explicitly were doing that, but um, but I also feel like there's something inherently pleasurable about long, where you're um, where you can't. I'll use your I'll use the uh, ocean metaphor since your book is there, but where it feels like you've you can't see the shore that you've you've left from and you can't yet see the shore that you're going to end up at so there's a if it's long enough where you feel like um there's an illusion that the experience isn't going to end at some point in the middle um that you are like completely in it um and something to do with the book being thick and big has for me has to do with that. That's my pleasure. Um, and I think of so many great books that I love that are large books mm -hmm. and I, and including um, George Eliot and other women who've written large books that I love, but I wondered what the attraction was for you. Why, why are you thinking, okay, um, big fat 19th century tradition novel? Well, I think it was, what you're talking about in some ways is a bit of a conflation of two things that I was thinking. And uh, one is in the beginning, I, you know, I was like, yeah, I want to write my own 19th century novel in my way. And, it, and this very much is that like, you know, if you break, I remember I had a really funny night with my boyfriend um, because <laughs> in bed and he was watching the great courses plus on something about like English, you know, 
19th century. I, I was I was half asleep and I just heard him turn on the thing and he was listening to it. He said, here are the main elements of that. He's like, you know, uncertain parentage, you know, trying to find their status in time. And Will is usually read at the, you know, like, and it just starts to go down and he just starts to like look over to me as he's like, you know, this, didn't you? I'm like, yes, in fact, I did, you know, but, um, you know, so there was that sort of playing with it, but it came out of the, the more um, simple question for me, which was, what am I afraid to write? What books do I love the most? Why can't I go there? You know, like those were the, that was the impulse to explore that. The length thing, when I was first thinking that, I was thinking of something like 350 pages. I wasn't thinking of like, you know, huge, huge. As I began to write, it really began to grow. And in part because by nature, I am a maximalist. And there were so many things that were in the stories. And um, I remember also at that time in trying to like, uh, was that the way that I would get talked to about it sometimes, I felt like there was a way that the, that women get talked to around long works that is different. And, and it reminded me much more about how people talk about women's bodies and fat. Like this idea that like, you're out of control. Like you just, you're not, you've lost, like, I don't know what's going, you gotta, you know, how are you? I would always hear from people. I say like, well, it's about 600 right now. They're like, oh my God, how are you going to get it down? It's like, are you going to diet in time for your wedding? It was like, never, it was so strange. That kind of way of constantly hearing that women have written long novels forever. They just ghettoize them into, uh, you know, genre fiction. Um, the question isn't, do women get to write long, uh, long novels? It's, can we take women's writing seriously enough as an intellectual project and still allow them to retain, quote, literary fiction, you know, standing in any way when they do? The shortening of this novel came for a different reason, which was um, I had an excellent conversation with uh, an agent who is very, very smart and uh, represents, you know, she's one of the big agents of like probably <laughs> most of like the literary, you know, writers of color that have been like the big little reader. I mean, she's been around a lot. She's very sharp and opinionated. She's a really good reader. And she had read a draft of this at the height of its size. And she gave me the greatest gift which is, you know, because everybody's like, this thing has to be cut in half or this, ha you know, and she wasn't like that. She's like, yeah, it, it'll probably have to come down, but here's why. And she was able to explain, you know, in her words to me, she said, every single thing that you're doing is, you know, this is what she said, is interesting and it's strong and it's working and I get lost in it and I can't, I'm losing, she's basically said, I'm losing the noise in the signal. She's like, I don't know what you care about most. I can go in any of these directions, but you're not telling me which one I'm supposed to go into. And so it was more of a cueing problem. And so I, when I went, that was very, very helpful to me because it allowed me to go and think, what is the, th you know, I was in this very maximalist encyclopedic place does the American project work? What is the road? What is space? Like, what are these characters doing? You know, and, um, 
And I know all those connections, but then forced me to, so I took it back in this way and I thought, okay, I'm going to edit it from this perspective. Um, if I were to give you, David, my book and say, read this, what are the, what is it that if you didn't get it, I would have failed. Like if you didn't, and if I were to say to you, what's this book about? And you couldn't say it was about one of these things that I would have failed my job. Like, what are the things I care about that much? What are the things I need to hear back from you if you tell me what this book is about? And I realized, and so I began to look at the lens through all that. And through that, I began to choose, you know, um, you know, I began to make those different choices with it. And I asked a friend of mine recently who read every iteration of this book. She's one of these people who reads super fast and always likes to read multiple iterations. She has read every iteration of this book and I said, how does it feel to you to see it in final form when you were so attached to the like 720 page version of it you know, and all of these things? And she just said, you know, and I think this is maybe younger kids who do more gaming, but she was like, it's more like a video. It's like there are rooms that were open to me before that are not open to me now, but they're still there. And, yeah. and she says, it doesn't feel any different than the first day I read it. There's just different rooms I can go into now that I couldn't go into before. And ones I went into before are gone. I love this friend of yours. So expansion doesn't have to be this and retract contraction. I do think women are just talked to totally differently about it. They're talked to it with fear of madness and control, fear of like taking too much space, fear of like, you know, just a lot of that stuff. And, I, and then my, my editor is fantastic. And the agent I ended up working with in the end was absolutely stunning. And I had lots of help, but fundamentally. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I want to, I'm going to ask you a question that I think maybe you've already answered with what you said about the narrator, the accusatory narrator. But I wanted to ask you about writing a book that feels very political and historical, but where none of the characters themselves are political. <laughs> yeah. Because this that's very unlike Zazen. So this is this is this is where I think of Moby Dick, speaking of large novels, not just because the book opens with a sermon at a lighthouse along the coast that makes me think of the sermon at the beginning of Moby Dick, not just because Essex, the main male character, shares the name with the ship that inspired Melville to write Moby Dick, a ship that was sunk by a sperm whale and whose few survivors and smaller boats lived off of the dead and then drew lots to see which half would be killed so the other half could eat them, not just because the book has boats, and sailors and whales itself, but also because like Moby Dick, which can be read just as a tale of a megalomaniac captain's obsession with a whale, but is also a book that is about America and it's about the bottomless hunger of extractive capitalism. Mm -hmm. You could even say it's about peak oil at a time pre-electricity when the world entire was lit by the oil of whales. So... Um, so whereas Della in your first book could be a character in your second book, she's unlike your characters in the second book in that she's overtly political and she has a political analysis and she's wondering what to do in relationship to her political analysis. But in this book, there's this atmosphere that is sort of infuses the book with the afterlives of colonialism, theft, graft, genocide, conquest, but none of the characters are actually speaking about it. 
necessarily. And I didn't know how you pulled that off. I love this about the book. Maybe that is the accusatory narrator. It is. If it is, it's, I don't think accusatory narrator is the right word because I never, the narrator comes in very subtly to me. I don't feel like I'm ever having a finger pointed at me. Um, the accusation, uh, you know, earlier versions, I would say it was a more accusatory narrator, not in the sense of why did you do this, but more in the sense of, you know, but who can halt the lumbering desires of the world? You know, it's, it's, there's that comes in from the beginning in the first pages. So at that sense, the narrators are always sort of teasing out those questions. So it is carried by the narrator. It's carried by the way that like history is talked about and, you know, uh, particularly around indigenous and genocides and, and sort of the sense of how place is, is built into it. The narrator carries that, the, some character, you know, the daughters are aware of history in some ways, in the ways that they've learned it from Kirsten. They're aware of women's history. Like they really, good luck on, <laughs> on that. Yeah. But, um, but that greater sense of, of what is in the dread and the grandeur and the crisis of the novel is carried by the narration. And that was a question, you know, it was a really tricky thing to go from Zazen to this because thematically, yes, a lot of similarity. Um, and, and yet I, th I, I felt all the time that I was writing this deeply troubled by the fact that here in this, you know, last eight, nine years where I had such strong political emotions myself, and there's such need to act and do things and change and participate and learn, you know, and, in all of this that I felt like here I was writing this novel that didn't have political, that was actually, it felt very apolitical compared to the directness of Zazen. And it's like, I did know, I'm like, it's more political in a way, but it's not the same and it's not as direct. And it was really hard for me at times to see why it mattered to write it at all. And I think a lot of it was, I was in this really deep engagement of what's to save, what's the beauty, what do I know that is beautiful? Like, wh where are the points of aliveness that I recognize? Because I've lived outside of America too. And, you know, I had to think of that too. Like, what are the points of aliveness that I know that are here that are not in other places that seem politically perfect, but don't have it, you know? And, and so I was trying to bring in a lot, but it was a deep, meditation for me it was pretty dark times you know and and it did feel strange to not be writing something that was going to be you know um very overtly directly having characters speak exactly um i think it's weirdly more political because it feels like the political is the entire world and every, which then is what we're all sort of steeped in, right? Regardless of whether we're thinking about it. But you've you've what the book is mainly realism. There's the fairy tale aspect to the family origin, which does feel it's not fantastical, but there's a fairy tale element to this origin story. But then you literally also have two ghosts. <laughs> two ghosts, historical colonizing figures that appear very much on the margins with a, a mainly a light touch in the book, but 
both the narrator and the way you bring in history and these ghosts, it's sort of this, what I would say, un-American continual reinsertion of the past and its consequences and it, and past actions and their consequences into the present moment. So unlike the American mythos of leaving the past behind and right. creating something anew, the past literally is haunting this book. Yes. By these, by these ghosts. Um, and I want, I guess what I wanted to talk about was that in relationship to the other mother. Cause I remember the feeling of vertigo and Zazen when the book would telescope between sort of the pressing and urgent needs of the moment and more of this geologic scope or time, time frame, uh, non-human, um, framing. And the main way I feel like you do that in the new book is with the other mother and the way she tries to disentangle herself from time and consequence through Buddhist practice. And it's something that feels as it is embodied in her. It's something that feels simultaneously attractive and repulsive somehow. And I was hoping you could talk without spoilers about her. Um, and also about Buddhism, I guess, also since it is a significant presence in both books. The question of, of scope, and I think uh, how I think of it is inextricability, is deeply, you know, complicity, inextricability. Can you untangle yourself? What are you responsible for? What do you, what is yours to carry? You're born into a country that was built on a lot of, you know, theft and racism, you know, and, and the labor of others. And, um, and yet you're born new onto this ground without having ever been able to be a part of any of those decisions. And how do you carry all of that in a way that allows you to accept what should be accepted on your shoulders and also respect the given right of every single alive thing on this planet to want to live and to want to feel like they can, that their life is also their own. How do you, how do you put those things together, right? And those versions of those questions go throughout my mind all the time. They go through everything, everything I've ever written. Geology, uh, you know, to me, I mean, I think there's a, a joke that Della says in Zazen where, you know, somebody had told her that like she needed to step back and get some perspective on, or something like that when emotional, like things are traumatic or like there's too much on fire. And, and she's just like, yeah, 68 million years seems to be about right. Like that's about how far I'd have, that's about how far I'd back I'd have to be to have an analysis on this that doesn't get really <laughs> upset, you know? It's right. like, well, compared to other extinctions. So that question of how far back do you have to be at what scope do you have to understand things to see the beauty again is in a way that's not checked out, but that, that can still encompass the detail. So not so far back that there is no detail, not so close up that you can't see the beauty in it again. Like, how do you find that, that spot? Well, there's a lot of shortcuts to that too. And I think that, you know, the other mother is one who is engaged 
in some of those shortcuts. And I find like everything, you know, that I'm fascinated and drawn to, I also have pretty deep, like, <laughs> you know, like there is a really gross side to, you know, there's all the ways that people talk about detachment that is uh, incorrect to talk about in Buddhist detachment, meaning like it's a, it's a sort of hackneyed understanding of what it actually means when you talk to Buddhists, you know, where it's just like detachment means having no feelings. I was like, no, it's not really that. Like, that's not it. it you know, there's, there's healthy ways of describing that. And there's ways of describing that that are like, you know, just creepy white dudes finding a reason to like, not actually have sex with people that they're in relationships with, you know what I mean? Like it's, it, there's all ways. Uh, I think that the 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 noble truth, I mean, the parts of Buddhism that have always been the most powerful for me is very much the Pali Canon and the very fundamental Four Noble Truths, the earliest stories, there's no deification in it. There's no like, you know, it is not Zen. It is not this. It is, not, it is very like, it. you can hear the in the mud feel of it in a lot of ways. You know, in that world, Buddha dies of dysentery and he has everybody watch him so that they too know that life is like this. You know, it's a very different thing than um, the iterations that come as it migrates through different cultures and becomes at once Gothic and beautiful in some ways in the Vajrayana or very down to earth in the Zen, but having this other quality that sort of lops off other, you know, I mean, I shouldn't go down a rabbit hole with that. But, <laughs> but I guess what I'm saying is that this then you come back to this question of poverty and privilege and things. And it's the who gets to, it's if you think of narratives as tools, these stories, they're all there. Who gets to use them? And who gets to use them to do what they already wanted to do? Who gets to use them with a different power because they have more power? And so the person who gets to go, I'm just going to walk away or I'm just going to do this and I'm going to call it this other thing, you know, some people just don't get to do that. And, and so I think ultimately Buddhism is not a home for me, but I have learned and appreciate a lot of the teachings, particularly again in the Pali Canada, that I consider to be so true, just true about, um, so the question of suffering, so take, the, I'm not, I'm answering something specifically about the character you're talking about. This is not a character who knows suffering. So what does it mean to apply the Four Noble Truths to somebody who doesn't know what suffering means? Or perhaps is pursuing Buddhism to avoid suffering. Yeah, or just like, oh, or just has no empathy, you know, what I mean? or any, you know, any element of it. It's like you can sit there and you can say those things but the foundational thing that makes it true is that you know and understand suffering. If you, yeah. if you can't get there, you can't start. Well, I want to I wanna go another direction with these two scopes of time because they also make me think of the time between our two conversations and not just as some mysterious gap between then and now, but because you're unfolding narrative as a writer your unfolding quest narrative as a writer working on her sophomore novel was a quest that was periodically visible to me as we would see each other um, in pre-pandemic days periodically writing in the same cafe. I was getting updates from you. At one point, you had lost the editor who 
was working with you, she moved to a new house and you were giving this new editor a chance that, that, but you reached a place where you realized you had two entirely different visions for the novel and two very different ideas of the 19th century novel that you were trying to write. And you walked away from this relationship without knowing if this would ever become a book. And owing lots of money. Yeah. And this, this was years into the process and I'd see you at the cafe and you'd tell me you'd rather fail on your own terms than succeed on the wrong terms. Or I'm, I'm making that up, but something to that extent. Um, and obviously you couldn't have known at the time that it would, that you would end up succeeding so well without compromising your vision. But you talk about this dark decade in your acknowledgements, both saying that novels are like doomed marriages. And you talk about also the help you got and the years where you didn't do your fair share of dishes or your fair share of bills and the people who did more than their fair share to try to make this novel succeed when it looked like it was going to fail. Um, and the people were so invested in with their own sweat equity that when you finally decided to quit, you're told by your partner that it was no longer your decision, that essentially you were beholden to the people who'd been lifting you up for so long to bring this to a, a, an aesthetic resolution. Um, and I, I guess I wondered if there's anything else you wanted to say, knowing that a lot of people listening are writers or artists or aspiring writers and artists about that time when, you know, you lost your editor who understood the book, you know, you went through a considerable period of giving this other situation a chance and then walked away from, you know, a, worked your way out of a contract, uh, walked away from money and from a, a publication deal. Um, is there anything about that that you would like to add? I know you, you nodded to it earlier. But I, people always love when the curtain is pulled back on these sorts of things, the taboo around speaking about the business side of writing also. Um, so if you do have anything about your quest narrative. <laughs> well, it goes back to story too, right? Um, and this is what I mean about story. And then I want to ask, uh, say something about the sort of business side of it. It is true that I said and felt and, uh, and that I and had made the decision for real that I would rather do it on my, you know, on my terms in terms of what I was trying to go after, um, then, then fail, then succeed on, I'd rather fail on mine than succeed on somebody else's. I don't know that I said it exactly like that, but that sounds like me. Yes. It was something very much along those lines. Um, and I said that and I meant it. And when I tell that story, and you tell that story now, it is, a, it is a story that ends in success. It is a story that ends with like, I got to go to Knopf and then I met the, and like and this happened and that happened. And I got a long list for the national book and it could just as easily be the other story. And that's the thing that's also true. So I do feel, I was at that point with this book and I did not have this idea that it was gonna be rescued. You have to, I have, um, Okay, let me try to say this a little more eloquently. I guess what I'm saying is it's almost impossible for a writer who's struggling in the business side and also with where they want to be right now to not hear that and want to hear the story that it all ends well. Because, of course, 
And yet, yeah, that's while that is true in this case, it was equally possible that it be not true. In fact, it was more possible that it would be not true. And the, so I want to focus on the reason I said the thing I said, which was not bravado. I meant it. And I put my actions behind it, but I meant it. It wasn't, um, is that I was in music for years and I made records that I did not love at different times. Some were okay. Some were terrible. Some were, you know I mean? But, but in, I didn't, I didn't do exactly what I wanted to do enough. I didn't stand my ground on certain things, you know, um, and as a result, like I spent 15 years doing something and I don't actually have the proof of what I really did best anywhere to show my child or my family or anybody, you know what I mean? Like there's no, there's things I'm like, oh, I'm pretty proud of that. But like nothing touched on what I actually really had the gift to do and how I did it. And so I don't have that to show, um, but I did learn all about the business and how to like, you know, do all the things I needed to do when I came into writing, it was really, I had that experience and it was really, really clear to me that the only thing that matters is the work. Like I only want that, you know, like the, how do you make a living is the, how do you make a living? So few people who are writing, there's a great story. Johnny Everson told me when I first started writing and I met him when Zazen came out and he said, you know, I was a baseball player he was a pretty serious baseball player as a teenager. And he's like, I was a baseball player. And I was like looking at me in a pro ball player, you know? And I remember making that choice when it's like, you know, yeah, not that many people get to go pro in baseball. You know, I'm gonna become a novelist instead. Like, and, and he said, you know, <laughs> he said, and then they did that piece, I don't know, 10 years ago, New York Times, something found out there's only 200 novelists in the country who are making their money just off novels, right? And then Johnny, you know, yells like, there were 1300 baseball players, right? Like <laughs> this kind of idea. And, and I love that because, um, you know, the question of how we make our living, some people, it's important for them that the ways they make their living say writer and hold that status. But most people are not making their money off novels. And, and so, I don't know, you'd make your own calls about what you need out of it. But I, I would rather have something that I have printed out in my basement and stapled together that I truly believe in to leave for my daughter than anything that, and, and the be most beautiful thing about this, and I give this credit not to me, this is to the people I got to work with. When I finished this book and I got it back, there was not one compromise. I did not feel like there was one compromise. I didn't feel like there was one single thing I said like, yeah, okay. I mean, we had discussions, we had different feelings, we had different, but there was nothing that I had to eat it on, nothing. And that felt great. And I could have had that, like they made, they made it better than I could have made it in my basement. Like it's not, you know, I mean, it was part of a process, but. It's not like you weren't taking feedback. No. It's not like, it's no. not like I didn't compromise, meaning. I wasn't going to listen to them. It was no, no, I know it wasn't like take it or leave it. You know, we had conversations about everything. I mean, that's all I ever want for people is like, have a, have a fair fight, you know, like yeah. the best idea wins, but, but the business side of it is also real. And I guess I do have opinions uh, about that, particularly for women. Again, um, you know, there's a, there's a gatekeeper mentality 
that really runs through that world that there's beautiful, wonderful people in the literary world who are very moved by, they're in it for the right reasons, that care about books. There's tons of them, tons of them, that great people. There's also just, but there's also this, it's a very status driven world. And it's a, and it's a world that's like, the status is very academic and performative and it runs off a lot of cues that if you don't come from that world, you don't recognize it. And I think they'd lose a lot of good writers because of that. I'm sure they do. And, um, you know, I even noticed coming from music that the very basic ways where I would say like, yeah, I'm not sure I really like, you know, that I would defend or uphold my position on something that to raise my voice at all was you know, all of a sudden, well, you think a lot of you, you, you know what I mean? Like it was like, there was this incredible performative submission they expect writers to have. So different from music. Whereas like, you know, you, it's just not this, it was like, you know, people just go to the mat and I was like, what the hell is my song? You know what I mean? Like you, you would have these bars, so different, so different. There's a timidity that's built into the industry and it's eroding and things are changing and it's shifting because it has to, because they don't hold the power that they really used to like they can't really be gatekeepers to everything um in the same way with self-publishing and smaller presses and you know all of that in online but i do think um just because someone gives it to you doesn't mean it's a gift like someone gives you an opinion like you be fully 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 belligerent defense of your own artistic instinct that's what you've got. It will trust that it will grow you and find the people who are excited by that. Well, I mean, I was thinking about that moment in the cafe with you and you're like telling me you're going to go for broke with the novel you wanted to write, perhaps literally broke, leaving the publishing house and, and the contract in hand without a place to land, essentially. So you're not leaping from, you didn't yeah. produce a place to land before you left. It took me a year and a half. I owed $76,000. <laughs> it feels connected to a lot of the th things that you write about, about growing up and hitchhiking tens of thousands of miles as a 15 year old. And you're not knowing how you're going to make it one week to the next one week. It could be selling flowers by the highway. It could be doing farm labor. It could be digging ditches. It could mean sleeping under an underpass or not sleeping at all. So that you knew when to jump out of a ride because the driver was about to assault you. And it feels very connected to something about your characters too, that, um, that energy or that, uh, willingness to, uh, go forth without knowing how it's going to end up. Um, and I wanted to, I, I guess I wanted to talk to you about something else in the book that feels connected both to your autobiography and this strange origin story of double mothers for your sister protagonists. And that is your dad's adoption. And you, you talked about, um, about this, you talked about one of the pieces you've written about it, that under somewhat mysterious circumstances, he gets adopted as a member of the Tlingit tribe in Alaska. And even though he didn't really on his own explore what that might have opened up for him. And so it wasn't a really a big part of his life. Ultimately, it doesn't sound like from what you've read. Some, um, 
it's changed some, and in some ways, I have more information about that now than I did. But finish yeah. your question, and I'll okay. Um, but when, but nevertheless, when you were a toddler, some of your first memories were of being on Tlingit land with your adopted family and with all of that iconography and um, culture. Um, so it is something you don't entirely belong to, but it's also something that you continually return to um, at the same time. And it's become a part of the narrative of this book with mm -hmm. a ship named the Neva, which is the name of a Russian ship that fought in the Battle of Sitka, which you've referred to, which is the battle between the Russians and the, and the Tlingit. So I was hoping you could talk about the Tlingit tribe and then the Tlingit in your life and the Tlingit in the book. The Tlingit are uh, an Athabascan uh, indigenous people um, in Southeast Alaska and, uh, you know, not just in Southeast, but primarily, you know, Tlingit and Haida are Southeast Alaskan. They have stories that match, you know, geological uh, and, and, and uh, anthropological records that go back 10,000 years on the land. You know, what some of the oldest sets of consistent storytelling and consist, you know, tribal consistency all the way back. They're remarkable. Um, I am no expert. Uh, there are a lot of, my father uh, was adopted in, 19, in uh, the early 70s when we moved up there. My father worked a lot with Klingit activists uh, and uh, developed very, very deep relationships with them that continue to this day. Um, one of the mentors and men in that world was a man named David Katzik and he died um, about three weeks ago. And David Katzik was, um, I'm actually, you know, so I was supposed to, when I was doing my sort of Zoom tour of, of the internet, um, I was also doing blog posts about the road trips that we sort of redid on the tour that go to the, that take place in the novel. And the last one is the stuff that involves Alaska and then goes out and also did stuff with Tall Ship America and a variety of things. And I was supposed to post it about three weeks ago. It was right when David died. And uh, he was an elder, Clinkett elder. He was actually um, not from the clan that my father was adopted into, which was Kiksadi. Um, so I am, you know, Kiksadi ID. I don't, it's a, it's a maternal, uh, you know, the line comes maternally and my mother was not adopted. So I'm recognized by my father's clan as a clan child. I'm not directly adopted because she, it would have had to have been, uh, Kiksadi's a raven moiety and, and she wasn't adopted because they were in the middle of divorcing in that time. So um, the David Katz, so I'm gonna, one of the things I'm doing in the next few days is um, I'm going to, which will be up by the time, somewhere, by the time this comes out for sure. Uh, I'm trying to go back and, and put up the things I was going to say and say more about my relationship, even tangentially to the Klingit and talk about David Katzik, who was a, a man and that um, was a mentor to my father in many ways, who is of his generation and is left an enormous hole in uh, the Klingit culture up in Juneau recently. And in Klingit culture, you would say, you know, he walked into the forest. That's how you talk about this. How he walked into the forest or walked in the woods? So uh, it was David Kotzik who, you know, I had um, the Fort of Young Saplings 
is a very complex story and it would take a long time to sort of retell <laughs> all of that here and you don't need, <laughs> need it. But um, I'd always had this uh, relationship because, you know, we talk about stories and I was told at a very young age, this is, you know, you, you have a Klingit family. These are your Klingit family, you know, treat it like a real thing. And then I was also moved across the country. My parents were split up. I grew up with this idea in the back of my mind that I was from this, you know, that I, I had a Clinket family. And I was in a world in New York where they're like, all the Indians are dead. We killed all the Indians. I'm like, that's not true. I come from the family that was never beaten by anybody, you know, because that's part of what I was raised to, to think. And so, so the intention to raise, uh, but then I'm taken out of that context. I'm in another place and it begins to just sound like madness. And, and uh, you know, and then as you, you get older and you think about things, it feels like, okay, is this appropriation? Is it this, is it that? You know, and then I had periods where when I'd go back to Alaska, I was reconnected and, and it was real in the way that it was real and not real in the way that it was not real. But what my feeling was to continue to just show respect for it and learn. So can I, can I connect? I know you don't want to go into the battle of no, Sitka. No, I'm willing to go where you want. It's fine. But I did want to connect it to this question from the very beginning around invisibility and narratives, the absence of narratives and what effect that has. Because one of the fascinating things in one of your writings about it is that um, they consider one of their central stories their victory over the Russians. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and yet And yet when you go to, say, the Wikipedia page or most sort of American or European accounts of that battle, they were roundly defeated in those narratives by the Russians. And that's not so. <laughs> so, so we have these two. Like the official account mm -hmm. is that they they were defeated, and their account is is the opposite. They won. Yeah, they won. So um, that's fascinating. Yes, and around this invisibility of narrative. So obviously yeah. that's their, their victory is not, did not, as you suggested around say a female quest narrative, didn't become iconic and, and um, enter the larger culture right. and enter his literally enter like whatever the, the, the shared history of various peoples. So, right. so what's that all about? So, in a nutshell? yeah, I mean, it's uh, the, in the Fort of Young Saplings that I write about, uh, there was this book that had been, um, so it, <laughs> this also gets to story. I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly because I haven't heard it pronounced in so long. I know, and I'm nervous. I'll get it. It's like, uh -oh, uh -oh, um, which is the sort of story ownership concept in Clinket culture. Um, and it is very unique and different from other kinds of cultures. And it's got very specific uh, rules around it. And so, for instance, there are stories that I can share, um, this, that I can technically share, that I probably reality wouldn't share because I still feel tentative about all of this, but that I, I theoretically could share because I have this Kiksadi, you know, lineage that allows me to tell Kiksadi stories. Um, I don't have, you know, many other, you know, clan lines that would allow me to tell other stories. So you don't just get to tell somebody else's story. Well, this created a problem in the sense that, you know, fundamentally when the uh, Klingets kicked the Russians out of Sitka twice and they beat them twice, um, that involved technically a move where they gave up the fort 
and then retook the surrounding areas. Giving up the fort to a European, and I did a lot of research on this, um, that's in the story, giving up the fort to a European uh, eye, military eye, everything about accepting defeat is built into the ritual of taking that space and switching ownership of that space. But that was a European understanding of what the rules, all, everything about the rules of war, like what engage prisoners, what, you know, like is all about taking that spot. Okay. But let me, let me, I want to spend some time with something that's still blowing my mind. Okay. And which is your whole investigation, which brings us back, back to big novels, right? So your theory, you're wondering, oh. and your theory that you explore and you, you go to great lengths to explore this. Was it possible that the strategies that the Tlingit used to defeat the Russians may have influenced or informed the Russians' own strategy shortly after against Napoleon, where they do the unheard of thing, according to military strategy, they abandon Moscow, their seat of power, in advance of the arrival of Napoleon's troops, an event that is immortalized by Tolstoy in War and Peace. So here we are back at the 19th century, Russia. So if this is true, this would connect everything. Your adopted family, your love of 19th century novels, and your novel. And I, want, I just want to, I, I just love this investigation. It is so cool. And I want you to talk a little bit about it, if you will. Yeah, I got obsessed with this. And it, it came up as I was as I read about the Battle of Sitka, and I really started to break it down. Okay, but I do have to go back and say, the reason there was no writing about the Battle of Sitka from, from a Klinga perspective was because of two things. Basically, the Klinga perspective that if it's not your story to tell, you don't tell it. Like you don't just publicly share stories. That's, story ownership is a big thing. The other thing, is if you've had a war and you've moved to a peace, you don't bring up those old stories. It's considered a way to start a war again, you know, or be rude, like you bury those stories with you. So there wasn't anybody speaking on the Klingit side about what actually happened and what, you know, it, in this way, until over a period of 30 years, uh, Richard and Nora Dunhauer uh, collected, who were, Nora was Klingit and her partner was an anthropologist, uh, linguist anthropologist. And they collected all this work and they got all the permissions and they got the stories and they set it up in a Klingit way. And they were able to finally make something that put them together. And I was reading that. The idea that um, War and Peace, which is a huge, you know, it's my, one of my favorite novels ever. I read it a bunch of times. I just automatically, when I was reading the Battle of Sikkim, I'm like, this is like the battle for Moscow that Kutuzov has. I mean, it just, it was instantly to me, how strange is this? That, you know, how is this any different? I began to look at the dates and then I began to come up with this crazy idea. Like, is it possible? Is it possible? Well, what's the first impossibility? And what I ran into when I first started to try to tap the web with historians about it, like I have this crazy idea. I'm wondering, you know, and I would pose it and, Oh my gosh, the disgust with which I was responded to uh, about like how ridiculous an idea that was, was incredible. 
like multiple people were just like one guy got the guy who wrote a book I actually used as one of the resources and it was so offended by it. He stopped talking. <laughs> it, was, oh it was crazy. And, you know, and I was like, I'm just asking a question. And like, that's where you go like, wow, how can it be so insane to ask such a simple question? Right. How could the great Kutuzov famous for saving Russia have had an idea that came from the indigenous people of South, you know, how could it, you know, so I was, first of all, trying to track it down in a couple of different ways. One, I wanted to find a European, uh, I need, I remember being on the phone with people going like, I need to find a really good historian who specializes in European warfare of, you know, the 18th, 19th century. And, um, and it was a really lovely uh, man who was is a very who's a very illustrious historian who just put me in touch with this unbelievably wonderful English gentleman who uh, whose specialty was land battles in the 19th century. You know, and he taught at um, he taught in England at um, their office, sort of their West Point. He taught uh, military tactics and history at West Point. And I met him on Armistice Day. And we were sitting there with poppies and like in this, and I think we talked for about six, maybe it's like four hours in this pub. And he was so gentle and he listened to my whole theory, like my whole like, okay, so this, and he asked all these like lovely questions about, could I draw this? Could I draw what I was talking about here? Could I say, you know, and then he just stopped and he stepped back and he said, let me tell you about engage, rules of engagement and the medieval system. And then he began to just talk me through but he had this, he was just such a lovely, lovely man to deal with on this. And I still stay in contact with him. He sends me his new history book. Like it's great. But this idea was, could it have happened? Could, and what I needed to find was a tie, some kind of tie that shown how that story in its more specific forms could have gone through back to a link to Tuzov. And I, I got this, uh, you know, I got a researcher who was like <laughs> a kid from Reed who spoke Russian. It was broke and sketchy and had him look up a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, like we, you know, it was done and, and trying to find all these different, and I'm, it's been years since I've looked at the research I did on that, but I found all these things where they almost connected, where like you almost could put him in the room with the person you could put him in the room with, but you couldn't quite do it until I saw the Tolstoy connection. Yeah, I mean, it didn't feel like you proved it, but it you certainly seem to establish multiple ways it could have happened. Yes, it could I mean, have one happened. of them being his Tolstoy's older cousin, yes, who he would listen to telling stories. Mm-hmm. Tolstoy would listen to his older cousin coming back from these huge sailing trips. He was on the Nadezhda, which was the pair, the other uh, boat that went with the Nieva. Yeah, so the Nieva was the one in the Battle of Sitka, and the other principal boat for Russia was the one that Tolstoy's older brother mm-hmm. was on. But I think you also established some shared neighborhoods in Moscow of certain people oh, yes. who, who yes. could have, who could have come home and spoken yeah. to each other. Yeah. I just when I go it. down a wormhole, I go down a wormhole. <laughs> like, <laughs> I want you to be right. I, I want to be right. I, think, <laughs> I, think it's I like do. A, I want you to be right. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, it's so great. And I do believe that they, you know, with not in the state of metaphor, but, and I think, I, I think my piece there makes a strong case 
that the Klingit won the Battle of Sitka. Yeah, which is which we we learn a little bit about in the Great Offshore Grounds. A little bit. I do want to. Um, so David Kotzik, the man I mentioned before, when I was writing Great Offshore Grounds, and when I was writing this, I went up to Juno for a forty day. Um, which is part of the, there's, there's certain rituals after death and before the full quick party. And so the 40 day is a, a 40 days after, but it's kind of a, a quick one compared to the kind of potlatch and party quick you would do um, afterwards. And I went up and I met with him and he told me a whole bunch of stories that were only, that I could only hear because of my kicksat, you know, that he had a kicksati uh, forebear uh, somewhere in his family. So he had, he was a story bear, you know, he had a lot of old stories. And, uh, and so he passed them on and told a lot of them to me. And there are very tiny parts that no one would ever notice in the clinket sections of this book that are nods to him. That are nods to the stories without telling those stories, but that like just have an object like an orange or something yeah, in it. I love it, that. Yeah, and, and so I've been thinking about him in it a lot, and and like, um, so the only places I publicly used stories that I heard were places where they were already published in the um, Russians in uh, Clinkett America. Okay. Well, I wanted to to end with the title and a, a couple things that about the title. I love the title because of the tension between offshore and grounds, um, something both watery and fluid and out of reach and something solid and stable and right under our feet held together like that or juxtaposed. But it's also a real place and one connected to the other boat. We've talked about the Essex because at that point we had eliminated so many whales to such a degree that the Essex had to go thousands of miles off the coast to the offshore grounds to even find the whales to kill them. And it is there that the ship is sunk by one great whale. And it feels like that, that feels like poetry. And it also feels that and the, the consumption of the dead and then the drawing of lots to eat, eat who's going to be eaten and who's going to eat um, just feels like a fitting allegory for late stage capitalism. Not that, the, not, that so you, <laughs> yeah, not that you, not that you spell any of that out about the Essex at all in the book. Um, but I was thinking about how y- you've said that you don't know for sure why your dad was adopted and how you had always thought that it was political, but you've come more recently to think that it could have been due to love, a love that um, couldn't be out in the open. Mm-hmm. And so that the adoption was something to facilitate that love possibly happening. Um, and that definitely feels like a motif in the book. People joining the army or hiding their illness or joining a political movement um, to head to both a metaphorical offshore grounds or a literal offshore grounds, not out of greed or curiosity or conquest, but out of love. Um, I don't know. Did you see that in, in the, in the book, that vein of, I don't think it's optimism for the future, but maybe an, the, uh, 
sort of a very present thread of care and love that uh, there's a way in which I feel like you take this willingness to go to the edge into the like thousands of miles offshore. Let's take it as a metaphor uh, in this case for someone else um, as a way to sort of flip that narrative. I mean, the people out aren't out there eating necessarily in the book. I mean, none of this happens in the book, but like I, I'm thinking of how like in real life people are going out there because we have no like sustainable reciprocal relationship to the land and to the ocean. And so we have to keep going farther out on the edge. Um, and then so much so that we're eating each other uh, alive, essentially. But there's a way in which you flip it, I think. It is exactly that, that those questions that I had uh, that you were talking about around the adoption uh, were very conscious in mind, particularly um, because as I began to think about that, I began to think about how much of politics is done, how, how many choices are done because of the person you're doing them for or with. And that I think we tell ourselves a lot of lies about that. And, um, you know, it goes from the simplest side to like, oh, I had a girlfriend who was a socialist, but now I have a girlfriend who's not. And so everything's different. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's that shallow version of that. But then there's also when it comes to those final moments of I'm going to give up something for real because I believe in you and you believe in it or because not necessarily for the thing. And it's, a, it's kind of a cliche about army that like, you know, you don't die for the country, you die for the person beside you. Like there's a lot of that. I think that's just deep into a lot of things. And I think in leftist and progressive worlds, we pretend that that's not there at all. Um, as well. And I think that, so there was very much in, in my mind with the stories of Livia and Sarah, it was very much in my mind um, where I think, you know, I won't do it for that, but I will do it for this. Um, this book has a lot more love in it. Uh, not because of love stories, but because you know so the friend of mine who i mentioned before who'd read it a whole bunch of times she'd read zazen too and she was, said she really likes zazen but she said this you know when i list everything that happens in this book it just sounds like the darkest thing ever like you know it's like darker yeah. than like in some ways it's like way darker like all the things that happen he said but it feels so different it and does it, and it feels like a book of care yeah like enacted over and over and over again yeah, and I went through a real process in writing it. Um, it's it sounds strange, but like this, this was a very uh, profound experience for me <laughs> to try to write this book. Was very very hard, and one of the things I came up to again and again and again was like how much darkness, how much love, how much dark. Like it was just it was it felt like. Yeah. I mean, I had crazy dreams. I had like this, the, the whole, I would sound like a mad woman if I told you the story of the internal experience of writing this thing. And it's of no interest to anybody. So I'll spare everybody. But like, it was, there was just this quality of, you know, going as deep as you could into these experiences. And it's because the characters love each other. They love each other and 
I love them and I'm writing it right. Like, you know, and, and so that just, it changed. It was, it showed me how much that alone could change everything in a story, you know, it, and I didn't know that, you know, like I feel like I learned about love and what it could do. And I didn't know it in the same way. And that is because I was also experiencing it with my daughter, with my partner, with other, you know what I mean? Like as I was deepening to understanding some of these things and in a lot of despair, you know, it, it was just, it was all part of a piece, but it was also a blindness. It was writing in blindness for eight years. It, it just, it felt like it was the most shamanic writing experience I've ever had. Like, it just was, you know, people say, how did that feel? I'm like, terrible, terrible. I never want to feel like that again, ever. Like, there was nothing. There was eight years of misery, you know, to try to get at it, you know? Yeah. Well, I, so I'm hesitant to ask you this question because of that. The This long road trip this that you went on, this eight years of of miserable writing experience um because i think you should be i want to ask you what you're working on next but i don't want to ask you that because i sort of feel like you should be in a hammock somewhere now well you should have given this interview from a hammock no and um but what are you working on next or what or if you're not working on something what does writing this what sort of, what does it compel you to want to write? So when I finished, when this went into the publishing cycle, I went back to work as a union organizer, which I had not done for 16 years um, because of the state we find ourselves in and because I worked for healthcare union, healthcare workers unions. And um, I began working for a uh, nursing home workers union and home care workers union and, you know, uh, and then COVID hit and all of this kind of stuff. And there's just, you know, a lot of work and fighting and organizing and things to do. And so I kind of went back into that world a hundred percent in that world. I am not writing in that world. I I'm working all the time and I'm not writing. And I know that that's the nature of that world. And that was okay. Uh, and is okay because I made a conscious choice that for this time, in these moments, in this place, that's what I want to be doing. But also because I knew as a writer that I often need a year or two after finishing a project to just like remember why I ever wanted to write again. Part of the drawback of being somebody who sort of thinks encyclopedically or maximally about things is I tend to throw everything in and then I got nothing. You know what I mean? Like once I'm done, that I'm done for a while. Like I've got to like, you know, I've got to let the fields go, you know? So I had a very encouraging thought about a week ago uh, about a project that I have, uh, that I've always intended to go back to. And, and uh, it's a novella I want to pair with uh, short stories and it's half finished. And there were things I liked and didn't like about it. And all of a sudden I had this kind of like, Oh, I know exactly what that thing is about. And I didn't know it when I started it. And I had this like, just take for a second that I couldn't describe that I knew, I knew what I was trying to write about and how to go do it. And there was just this quick moment of going like, yeah. And then I was like, and in a year, I'm going to get to it. <laughs> so, you know, um, I think I'm in a place of just letting the world hit me again. 
and and know what I know as an artist that I didn't know as a younger artist is that it just grows back and it grows back and it grows back. And even when I'm not writing, my artistic mind is developing and growing. And when I start, whenever I start again, I will be somewhere new. And the work is not getting, it's different to stop in the middle of a project than to stop between. They have very different outcomes. Right. And so I don't have any fear about start. I mean, there's, that's where you have to separate the business. It's not good for your career. It wasn't good for my career to take eight years to write a book. You know, I mean, like these things are not good for your career, but, but the work is the work. Yeah. You just need to, so speaking about uh, gendered responses in the business world, you just need to f- figure out how to be the the female version of Jeffrey Eugenides or, or Jonathan Franzen who put out one book every 10 years and it's there and it's a, uh, it's an event. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that they're going to, I don't, I don't think the world is opening up to me in that particular moment. (laughs) (laughs) I hope it is. My mom would go like, my mom would sit there and go like, all these last eight years, my mom would say like, you don't want to be Donna Tart. You don't want it. I'm like, what do you mean? She's doing fine. <laughs> she was just like, she had that first book and everybody was excited. And it took nine years to get her next book. You know, it was just like, and then of course it did great to it. It was just like, what do you mean you don't want to be Donna Tart? Like, of course you like, that's my mom. You're like, she wants to yes. tell me. <laughs> well, thank you for being on Between the Covers again, Vanessa. Thanks, David. We're talking today to Vanessa Veselka about her latest book from Knopf, The Great Offshore Grounds. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Vanessa Veselka's work at vanessavaselka.com. Also, don't forget that listeners of today's program can get 20% off on Ixtamaya Murray's new novel or any other book put out by Northwestern University Press with the code POD20 at their website, nu press.northwestern.edu. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting Between the Covers. Head over to patreon.com slash between the covers, where you can learn about the bonus audio archive, collectible items or writing advice by your favorite writers, getting a bundle of books sent to you and curated by me, or joining Tin House's early readership subscription. Again, this and much more can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so via PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo, Elisa Ogie, and Spencer Rukti in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Vishwana Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes 
and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.